welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Alisa von jürgen and I am here with my co-host, Irene Victoria Massimino. Our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. You can find us on our website, iraqproject.org, and on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. So I want to welcome everyone back. We're having a podcast of two today. <laughs> just Irene Hello, and myself. Hi, Irene. <laughs> you know, I, I just wanted to add that you are saying my name better every time. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of, a yes, lot of, yeah. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> that's great. I'm glad I'm getting better at it. Here, you say it now so people can hear how it's actually said. Oh, thank you. It's Irene Victoria Massimino. Victoria. <laughs> so it's, it's not easy. I always say it's not easy for me to pronounce other names either, foreign yeah, names. It's we have an accent of pronunciation, but no, no, you're getting very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's just us today. We're going to be talking about two things. One mm -hmm. is the recent escalation of violence in Israel-Palestine and our statement on that violence that we released uh, last Saturday, so on May 8th. Um, and we're going to be talking about the Iraq Project and what we intend to do or what we are doing with the Iraq Project. Um, and in fact, there's overlap between these two things uh, within kind of the rubric of genocide prevention. And so we'll be discussing some of those links as well. Certainly, certainly. So I wanted to bring this piece of news just to keep uh, well on the topic you just mentioned, Elisa, the conflict, uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, um, and highlight that the violence we've seen escalating recently and starting with the evictions in East Jerusalem is part of a bigger context of conflict that we'll hopefully be covering in another podcast with expert guests on the situation. Um, but we'll specifically refer to this uh, particular moment of violence now, as we've, as Elisa mentioned, we've uh, published uh, a statement on Saturday um, that is part actually of our work on genocide prevention, certainly. So this is on UN News, uh, UN News, I'm sorry, uh, the United Nations News, and it's it was released on 7 May a statement actually of the United Nations Human Rights Office uh, calling on Israel to immediately halt all forced evictions, including those in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem. Mm. Uh, forced evictions have been occurring for a very long time, uh, but as is shown in the media, it has increased in East Jerusalem mainly uh, inhabited by uh, Palestinian Arabs, uh, it has increased a lot in the recent days. And in a time, a very uh, dear time for Muslims uh, because, it's, uh, the, because of the time of Ramadan. Um, according to the UN News, eight Palestinian refugee families residing in the Sheikh Jarrah uh, neighborhood are facing forced evictions due to a legal challenge by the Nahalat Shimon Settler Organization, with the risk imminent for four of the families, according to the office. So apparently four of these families have imminent um, eviction uh, right now in this moment. 
So the OHCHR spokesperson, Rupert Colville, actually said that given the disturbing scenes in Sheikh Jarrah, and I'm quoting here exactly what he said from the news, over the past few days, we wish to emphasize that East Jerusalem remains part of the occupied Palestinian territory, just as uh, many parts of the West Bank, of course, or the entire West Bank is this military controlled by Israel, in which international humanitarian law applies. This is said by the United Nations. The occupying power must respect and cannot confiscate private property in occupied territory and must respect unless absolutely prevented the laws in force in the country. Um, in addition, uh, the absentee property law and the legal and administrative matters law are applied in an inherently discriminatory manner based solely on the nationality or origin of the uh, owner. So this is also very important due to the discriminatory actions that we will be talking about further. I think this is, uh, as we mentioned in our statement, this is violence that unfortunately has been escalating a lot and Lisa will deepen on this. In practice, the implementation of these laws facilitates the transfer by Israel of its population into occupied East Jerusalem, the transfer of parts of an occupied power civil, uh, civilian population into the territory that it occupies is prohibited under international humanitarian law and may be amount to a war crime. And I think you, Elisa, will bring something about the ICC, right? Yes. Something that is happening in the ICC. So I just want to clarify again, this is what happened in the recent days. This was from Friday, 7 May, and this probably continues to occur. We're not in, in Jerusalem, unfortunately, to bring the exact news on the on the field, in the field, actually, where they're happening. Yet in this is just the violence that happens these past days. This is something that has been occurring, and we know the uh, amount of settlers, of hundreds of thousands, actually, of settlers. I don't know the exact number at the moment, but I will look at it while you speak, Elisa, of settlers in the West Bank, actually. So, um, so you have something about the ICC, right? Yeah, just just a quick note that the ICC, mm -hmm. that um, the head of the ICC, Fatou Bensouda, tweeted, in fact, that the ICC is monitoring the situation for possible international crimes. And mm -hmm. although Israel is not a party to the ICC, that uh, the ICC's jurisdiction does extend into the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. And so the ICC would have jurisdiction over crimes committed mm -hmm. against or within those territories. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I mean, our statement, I'm going to talk a little bit about our statement. Just, sorry to interrupt, oh, yeah, Shirley, sure. just to make sure, uh, there's a Peace Now organization, I don't know it actually, but um, I'm quoting it, um, it's it's from Israel, I think, and the number of uh, 132 settlements in the West Bank, it shows, and the number of settlers, it's almost half a million um, persons, it's 4,400 uh, 41,600 settlers in the West Bank, according to um, this particular organization. But we will deepen on this to give the exact um, and how it grows. It actually shows how it grows from 1967 mm -hmm. when they occupied Gaza and the West Bank and, and of course, Jerusalem. Um, so we'll, we'll give more accurate information next on, on our next podcast about this conflict. Okay, yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And so, you know, 
I think there's been a question about why we might have released a statement already on May 8th, which was the day after the recent sort of uptick in violence, right? The, the surge in violence that occurred on Friday night when um, Muslims in East Jerusalem were breaking fast and heading to Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is so mm -hmm. sacred, as you mentioned. Um, and Israeli defense forces, as well as what appeared to be civilians and settlers, um, attacked Palestinian Muslims within the mosque, actually mm -hmm. spraying people in the mosque with tear gas and rubber-coated steel bullets and um, injuring over at the, the information we had at that time was over 200 Palestinians, mm -hmm. right? And then preventing uh, medics and the Red Crescent from, from appropriately, right, treating treating the injured and the wounded. Um, so we, we, we saw immediately what, what this violence could mean and did mean, particularly in the context of this kind of uptick in dispossessions and forced displacement and evictions that has been going on that was empowered by uh, the former U.S. President Donald Trump's decision mm -hmm. to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem and therefore recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, uh, something that has not been recognized because of internationally by most countries mm -hmm. uh, because of its special international legal status. Yeah, status, right? exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the U.S. moving its embassy is sort of a de facto endorsement mm -hmm. of this notion that Jerusalem should become a part yeah, of uh, Israel. Certainly. And that mm -hmm. has, of course, sort of given the green light to those uh, sections of Israeli society and Israeli politics who wish to remove Palestinians from Jerusalem, if not from, you know, the entire region that we mm -hmm. call Palestine, on mm -hmm. which Israel, you know, established its independent state in 1948. Um, so, you know, there were a couple things, I think, about the violence that, that had us very concerned from the moment we started getting news about it. And for me, one of the, and Irena, you can jump in, but mm -hmm. for me, one of the, so we decided, I just want to back up a second, we wrote, the Iraq Project for Genocide Prevention believes the violence shown tonight, right? So it was written actually the night of the 7th of mm -hmm. May, um, shown tonight against Palestinians is genocidal. It is a red flag for possible international crimes. Uh, we call on the world to denounce and properly address the actions of the Israeli government without fear of ad hominem, ad hominem accusations of anti-Semitism reflected in the tragic ex escalation and radicalization in its rhetoric, policy, and practice towards the Palestinian people over the past months, especially in East Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And there's something about, do you know, and, and other other uh, observers have, have, have noted this over and over, but there's something about um attacking people in their place of worship that mm -hmm. that can be a real red flag for radicalized policies of genocide or ethnic cleansing or colonialism or settler mm -hmm. colonialism whatever yes. model you want to apply here mm -hmm. um because of its symbolic nature so when we see it in mm -hmm. the news oftentimes people I, I hear said well you know that is um 
attacking people in a mosque, right? You should expect there to be retribution for that, right? Mm-hmm. Or a or a exactly. militant response. Yes. But it goes beyond that. It's not simply a provocation, right? Mm-hmm. It can be yeah. a provocation, but it's also a, a symbolic act. It's an act mm-hmm. of desecration. Yes. It's an mm-hmm. act of rejection of a religion, right? It's mm-hmm. an act of rejection of the value of the people within that religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, it can be seen as an act against a religion or it can be seen as an act against the people, right? So, um, and in this case, I, you know, I, 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 from what I've read, you know, most, um, most uh, thinkers who are sensitive to the Palestinian point of view do not believe this is um, a religious mm-hmm. Right, conflict, but rather exactly. an ethno-national conflict. Mm-hmm. I was going to say. I agree exactly. with that. You know, however, right, one of the ways, of course, to commit atrocity crimes against a, a national group, such as the Palestinians or an ethno group, ethnic group, um, is, of course, to go after their religious sites and their religious institutions that are so important to their identity. Mm-hmm. So we saw this as an attack on identity, and we decided, you know, it's always unpopular to use the word genocide near the word Israel, because number one is Israel, its official stance um, in it, because it's refused to recognize the Armenian genocide, for example, is that the Mm -hmm. Holocaust is the true case, perhaps the only case of genocide out there. And therefore, whenever one uses the term, you're forced into this box where you're also somehow calling Israel, you know, uh, the Third Reich or calling mm-hmm. Israelis Nazis. And, and so you get forced into this um, kind of useless discussion about whether Israelis are Nazis, which is, of course, an, an absurd analogy. Those kinds of historical analogies are rarely useful. And, you know, the Nazis were Nazis. So those are who the Nazis are. They were the Nazis, right? Um, exactly. But genocide mm-hmm. is, you know, it's it's not as, as unique as, as Israel thinks it is and so it's much more common and we decided that you know if we were to be truly uh, consistent in our application of this term that we were going to have to come out with a statement about what we saw going on in Israel because if this were happening in Iraq or if this were happening in Myanmar or if this were happening in Sudan you know or if this were happening anywhere else in the world if it were happening in the United States if it were happening in Argentina Irena and I yeah. would say this is potentially genocidal. It is genocidal. It's a red flag for interne- possible international crimes. Exactly what we said about Israel. And so we just felt to be consistent. We had to call this one out that way. Exactly. I, I agree. I just wanted to add a couple of things. I think uh, I always, uh, from what I know of the conflict, and I've been, I told you I've been a couple of times to to Palestine and to Israel as well. And for me, originally, it was not a religious conflict, but it could have escalated now to also have an, a religious aspect to it, certainly, and it does. It does with the violence show in Al-Aqsa and also in the specific moment of Ramadan and in the specific mm-hmm. moment of their prayer time mm-hmm. and maybe also um, other violence if the specific moment of Iftar, Iftar yeah. as well, when they break the Ramadan. So I think it has... It has included now this unfortunately this religious content when one hears the stories of 
the of 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 the the all religions living together you realize that originally it's not it's a political conflict actually yes uh, however for so many years and because there is a a majority of the palestinian arab population to actually be muslim right it's, then it has become also um May, uh, part of it a religious conflict or has an aspect of, of religion in the conflict. Of course, there are many Palestinian Christians as well that have been um, suffering uh, from violence as well. And uh, Palestinian Armenians Arab too. Christians. And Armenians, Armenians as well. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. And Armenians as well. So, and um, also when we mention that as you said, because we wanted to be consistent with looking at the particular at this particular violence in this particular moment, we have to look at it in the overall context on the violence, and we see that the violence is based on discriminatory grounds mm-hmm. and it's based on the nationality mm-hmm. or on the old or origin of the individual who's being attacked, and the evictions are based on that as well. Mm-hmm. They are victim. Uh, is Jerusalemites, is that the the word? Yes, yeah, Jerusalemites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a victim, is Jerusalemites who are of Palestinian Arab origin. So there is a specific targeting of this particular group, of the identity of that group yes. that uh, make us, uh, of course, have this uh, this particular t- statement in this in this specific way to talk about genocide. And uh, as you say, yeah, nobody likes the word genocide. We don't like it. I mean, no, nobody, I wish it could be prevented. And I think the statement is just that. It, it's a way of the work. It's a way to show that the work we do is to that, is to say this will escalate into further, further violence, the violence we see today. The violence we see that is causing many deaths, not just wounded, but many deaths, much destruction, and more resentment violence only leads to more violence and in a bigger way and it will and i think it will continue unfortunately to be big i think the international community needs to listen to this and really put an end to this conflict i believe they they've like you mentioned the u.s has been fueling the conflict and everybody has been naturalizing the conflict and when there is somehow this I'm going to say peaceful coexistence, but it's not, but maybe it's a, a coexistence without the level of violence that we see today, then the world gives its back again to this conflict. And everyone suffers from this conflict, mm-hmm. the entire humanity, not only Palestinians, not only Israelis, not only the people living in the region, but the entire, every conflict has impact over the entire population of the world. Until we realize that, unfortunately, we'll continue to coexist with conflict and have death, martyr, replicate, and even more grow in our world, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, precisely. I think that's so important, you know, and the term genocide, the the reason it's such an important term and the reason that Raphael Lemkin fought for mm-hmm. it, right, is that, is that it, 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 it itself sheds light on a certain process, right? That human beings, unfortunately, tend to commit and commit and commit and commit again Mm -hmm. throughout history. And, you know, in Israel, unfortunately, this has become an identity-based process. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and 
There's a lot of work in genocide studies on Israel as a settler colonial state, and that's 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 something we would have to get into and and yeah. discuss. You know that there there I I think there's some problems with using that model solely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. of its particularities, but. Um, but the eliminationist logic has been there from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. The desire to rid a certain border of another identity of Palestinians or Arabs in Palestine, mm-hmm. right? Um, this has been there from the beginning. And even on April 22nd of this year, uh, extremist Jewish settlers in East Jerusalem held a march where they were proclaiming death to Arabs and mm-hmm. attacking <laughs> Arab um Arabs in in East Jerusalem mm-hmm. then so yes. very close to this mm-hmm. violence and so you know there are moments in any in any genocidal pattern where um, where where it's expressed more directly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Israel has such because of the Trump administration's policies um, but also previous US policies mm-hmm. but the Trump administration yeah. really gave the current uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, a green light. Israel has Mm -hmm. such impunity now, and it's so powerful that the setup is already there, right? And so the worry is built built into this entire process is the concern that one day Israel may decide, do you know, this is just too much work. It's just too much of a problem. We have this constant low-level conflict with Palestinians. We believe we have a right to this land, and we're just going to rid ourselves of Palestinians. That's something that this the scholar named Benjamin Valentino calls the strategic logic of genocide. Mm-hmm. Genocide can serve strategic ends. It often does. Mm-hmm. And when yeah. we call a certain type of violence genocidal, in a sense, we are not focused on making moral claims about one group or another or a, one state mm-hmm. or another. What's interesting is not the moral claim. That's far too easy. You know, yeah. um, what's mm-hmm. interesting to us is, is you know, calling attention to a process that only ends in catastrophe for yeah. everybody involved. So in this case, both exactly. Palestinians and Jews. Look at Iraq now, yeah. you know, and so yeah, years and years not, of serial mm-hmm. genocide. Who has that helped in Iraq? Yeah. I like your point. It's not about morality, and I, I, I don't, I don't like. It's true. Nobody is, you know. It's in. Uh, we, we certainly don't stand in a, in a. We don't see ourselves as standing in a step over of morality or something yeah, more right. higher morality than others. Certainly not. I think is what we fight against is that violence. Is that violence right. that eventually will affect the world because it divides, mm-hmm. it creates discrimination, mm-hmm. it creates violence against the different groups all over the world, and it only harms everybody, right? right. <laughs> That's or It harms everybody, not just, like I said, not the groups involved, not only the Palestinian Arabs, not only the Israelis, but everybody in this world. And we can no longer continue to have a conflict like this. I think this is... This is a matter of, it's an imminent matter to stop this conflict and to finally reach, and it would be interesting to discuss, to finally reach uh, a, a scenario that is viable for for both peoples in this particular yeah. case, for the yeah. Palestinians and the and the Jews, of course. Right. Right. And I love to discuss this because I've heard so many that the existence of two-state solution is no longer possible. 
that the existence maybe it should be one state, but then the problem is that the Israeli state, of course, is a Jewish state, so it wouldn't have maybe the same rights for the entire Palestinian population. Right. But that's something I would love to have. Maybe we can have someone talk about that. What would be the 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 a positive outcome on this, right? How yeah. could we help in solving this problem? And how could we solve You know, I've, I've, I've met many people working on on like small, like the one we like, you know, grassroots work, because there's a lot of resentment, of course, on both sides. There's a lot of resentment. So many people have lost their lives. So many people have lost family, relatives, friends, etc. So that requires a very long process of healing. So how do you find, uh, how do you achieve something positive in this overall context of resentment and violence that's something that i love to discuss with you know with someone with with people that know more about the conflict and they're more into the conflict and how we can help as the iraq project actually because i don't see like you said i don't see that much difference between uh what happened in iraq i mean these groups have been fighting and fighting and killing each other and committing genocide against each other and it's just it 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 ended in what's now mm. almost i want i don't want to say a failed state of iraq but for a lot of people it is a failed state because it fails to protect the different groups it has failed to yeah. so many things exactly and the so, threat is still there for so many yeah. groups of genocide being oh, renewed exactly. you know um and and not you know and and even genocide against the the ethno-religious group that um, made up ISIS, for example, the Sunni Mm -hmm. Arabs, you know, they were so powerful for a while, but they're only 20% of the population. If they lose power, then maybe it's their turn. Exactly. And these cycles of violence don't end themselves. They require grassroots intervention from below, Mm -hmm. and they require heavy-duty diplomatic intervention from above. And um, you know, and that is necessary. And you are absolutely right that any solution will require that Palestinians be taken seriously yes. as sovereign mm-hmm. actors, as valuable yeah. human beings, mm-hmm. as peoples whose voices matter, as people whose lives and property exactly. and memories and suffering matters. You know, in that mm-hmm. way, it really resembles... Um, you know, a different, but but in many ways, kind of similar case in the United States with African Americans yeah. and the constant brutality mm-hmm. that this state commits against African Americans and the yeah. refusal, really, of the United States to accept black realities here as yeah. truth, as and legitimate, treat them as, as equal citizens. Exactly. To the- the right. white people or the white, you, you know, exactly. supremacists, etc. And yeah. to bring mm-hmm. people to the table as equals mm-hmm. and say, what can we do about this long history of slavery, exactly. genocide, exactly. and and terrorization that we continue to put you through, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so mm-hmm. I think that's necessary in the U.S. and it's necessary in Palestine as, as in many other places, Iraq yeah, as well. Do you yeah. know, but Irena and I do not, you know, we don't, we do not discriminate on which countries we will look at using this lens of genocide and its prevention. Um, And and we just take very seriously the, um, the long-term impact of identity based violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and we know from our own studies and work where Mm -hmm. that can go. 
So yes, so, I, so I hope that. Um, I mean, things seem to have changed a little bit. I don't know how it is in, in, uh, in Argentina, but here in the United States, things have changed. I mean, in the last twenty years, uh, there seems to be a growth in sensitivity to a Palestinian point of view. Mm -hmm. um, even in my country that has been so pro, you know, blindly pro-Israel, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, one can be pro-Israel without being so blind, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. right, without endorsing everything, without questioning. Yeah, everything, exactly. Mm -hmm. But so there seems well, to be a shift in the yeah. news. You know, there's still this both yes. sidesism. like it was very annoying after this clash on, uh, this clash, right, on um on Friday night, that's exactly the word that was used, right? Clashes erupt, passive tense, right? Yes. When, oh, okay. as you pointed mm -hmm. out, right, that, you mm -hmm. know, as you pointed out, um, this started with evictions and threatened evictions, right? Exactly. It was a small protest around the time of the break of the fast. Mm -hmm. And the um, Israeli Defense Forces decided to respond with disproportional force exactly. against worshippers. Um, exactly. You know, so that's not clashes breaking out. That's that's yeah. state terrorization <laughs> yes. of an occupied population. I, did, yeah, I right? didn't realize about the word. I thought just because it's English, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I didn't realize. That no, but you. I don't think you use that yeah. term. But that's the. Term. No, I don't use the yeah. term. No, right. it was on the news. But it was I on didn't the news, see right? something of diminishing mm -hmm. or anything diminishing the level of violence because right. yeah, maybe I thought it was just. Yeah, but it's true. It's true. When one thinks of that, uh, the word, um, maybe, yeah, they try to be like you said, like both sides to, to balance both sides, right. etc. I think it's I mean, it depends. There's a lot of uh, Palestinian diaspora in Chile, for example. Uh -huh. So there is a lot of activism on that. And particularly myself, I know a lot of people that have been active on the rights of Palestinians, but, you know, it depends on where the people work, etc. So I think, but as you, if we look at the main, maybe global powers involved in in this scenario, and that would be the US and Europe, certainly, there is somehow a shift and there is a lot going on on, on boycotting. I have to speak my mind about that too, you know, because if you boycott, you, all, you also harm you know, economically, people, a yeah. lot of Palestinians that actually work. So yeah. it's, 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 it's also difficult. It's tricky. Mm -hmm. Boycotting is tricky. But there is a lot of peaceful demonstrations. There, there are a lot of, a lot of young people also yeah. involved in the U.S. and, and Europe for Palestinian rights, etc. So, and in a peaceful manner, I realize that, that they find or they... They try to find peaceful means of protest yeah. to yeah. to achieve, like we were talking, some some positive uh, solutions, some positive outcome for the peoples. But I'd like to go in depth, you know, on the possibility of the, you know, two state or mm -hmm. the one state or how it would happen yeah. in the future. Because I see so much violence and resentment grown in in, in both sides, actually. I mean, that's definitely in both sides it's very very difficult that uh, there's a lot of work to be done yeah, there is and, and you're, uh, I want to highlight something you said about it being a global problem yeah. and you're right that all conflict especially nowadays ends up being global yeah. in some way but this one um, feeds into two truly global ideologies of hate anti-semitism yeah. and Islamophobia yeah. 
Exactly. Right? It's true. And you know, They're, I have yeah. I taught a class yesterday where we discussed this. It's so strange. This recent um, outbreak of violence occurred, you know, right when we're talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict, yeah. conflict in my class. So it was just very strange timing. Um, and, you know, some of my Jewish students uh, who are very critical of Israel were telling me about anti-Semitism they were now experiencing since yeah. since Friday. You know, just a, yeah, a exactly. real up, That's the problem. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the problem. And so... You know, these, these, if we allow, and you know, this can serve political interests too. If we allow these conflicts to continue, yeah. certain yeah. political interests will thrive in the chaos. That's always the case, you know, yes. and I have mm -hmm. vested interest in it. Um, while the rest of the world, and particularly those people with identities that get kind of corralled into the violence, mm -hmm. right, in the diasporas mm -hmm. around the world, yeah. um, or in the you know Muslim world, right, outside of the outside of East Jerusalem and the Palestinian territories, um, it you know these these constant conflicts just shut down peace they shut down the opportunities for peace for, you know exactly. so what are young people in the u.s to do if they're palestinian or if they're jewish and they're be called being called names here in the united states because mm -hmm. of their identity now mm -hmm. right yep. due to a conflict that's far away from their control from you know, what are they yep. to do to maintain balance and to maintain an open mind about the other, right? Yep. So what we're seeing is just like the doors being closed yet again on the mm -hmm. possibility of of any kind of peace. It's too much to ask people to overcome hatred being thrown at them. We exactly. ask it of ourselves, you know, we demand it. It would be a great thing if humans could do it, but it's too much to ask societies. It's too much to exactly. do that all it's too by much themselves. If you are one of those identities. Right? It happened with the Armenians as well. They yeah. were being attacked in France right. in the middle of the con mm -hmm. uh, of the conflict last year. Right. So this happens when yeah. a person has a specific identity that is being involved and that goes beyond because it belongs to a diaspora. Right. A consequence of a pre previous uh, genocide, like the Jewish or the, with the Holocaust and the Armenians with their genocide, then they are uh, becoming victims again of this violence that occurs, like you said, uh, thousands of kilometers away from them. Yeah. So it's 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 a bigger problem than just that conflict in that region of the world. Absolutely. Eventually, it's it's for everyone, and we've seen it. it. You know, we've we see with Islamophobia, like you said, we've seen it. You know, in Europe, rising a lot. I think in the U.S. as well, right? Mm -hmm, Islamophobia, mm -hmm. and uh, with anti-Semitism as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so, so anyway. It's a problem. We we'll, we hope that we we you know we bring a lot of experts on this because mm -hmm. it's something that we have to talk about. Yes. And that we have to try in contributing, even though we are the Iraq project that doesn't limit us to Iraq. Yeah. And try to contributing as much as we can. There is not. I mean, there is a lot of people working. I know in both sides, in Palestine mm -hmm. and Israel, there is a lot of people working for peace. But evidently, it's not enough. So right. the more that are involved and that are outspoken about it, the better will be for the future. Absolutely, one hundred percent agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's actually a nice time to segue. Um, 
to the Iraq project itself, you know, and some of the reasons we started it and how that happened. Right. But, um, but it was a similar, it had a kind of similar uh, source, right. Or beginning, Mm -hmm. which is that, that we were invited to Iraq by a small um, NGO, Yazidi and Christian grassroots initiative, really, uh, mm-hmm. as members of the International Association of Genocide Scholars Executive Board. Uh, so we were both on that executive board and we were invited as, as you know, the entire board was invited by the small NGO to come and witness um, ISIS atrocities in northern Iraq. And this was in January 2016, right like two months after the region of Sinjar that had previously been under ISIS control had been liberated by the Kurdish Peshmerga and um, and U.S. and coalition forces. So we were invited to come to that war zone, which had very few civilians in it, and just mm-hmm. witness the horror of it. And, you know, in that space, Irene and I could see genocide and genocidal patterns, and we could also see hope for peace. Um, Mm -hmm. And we had to think to ourselves, how can we contribute to peace? What what do we bring? We can't bring, you know, we don't have a lot of money. We're not doctors. We're not therapists. So we can't help with basic and immediate needs. Um, But one thing we do have is expertise in genocide prevention and international law. And, you know, refugees or IDPs, internally displaced people that we met were so interested in these subjects. They knew Mm -hmm. a lot about them and they wanted external partners. And we were surprised that the world had kind of, you know, there was so much in the news about what ISIS had done. But Irena, just one quick note, when we were taken to um, uh, the mass grave of a very, very famous execution site. It was a mass grave of Yazidi women over 40 who ISIS did not believe yeah. they could use as sex slaves. And so were, they were deemed useless. Um, they were murdered from, from the small town of Kocho, which is where Nadia Murad mm-hmm. came from. And so we saw mm-hmm. that mass grave where her mother lies. And yet it wasn't, do you remember this, Irena? It wasn't yes. secured. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. And the, no, you know, I, and the poor Peshmerga mm-hmm. were doing what they could. And, you know, there were Yazidis working to do what they could. But we thought, where's the international community? Yeah, I remember. I was going to say, I, I let me add something. Yeah, keep, yeah please talk. That, uh, <laughs> that um, we, I think more than, you know, we... Like you said, when we were invited that we didn't know anything, we didn't know what was going to happen. It was just going like blindfolded to a country we we knew about from the news. I remember somehow being a little active. I was a lot younger in 2003 when the U.S. invaded Iraq. Yeah. So I sort of knew a lot from that moment on and, you know, from studying Mesopotamia and anything. But when we went there and we, you know... You in particular came up with this idea of the project. And of course, I was on board in a second. You just had Mm -hmm. to name it. And I was there in a minute. I think what characterizes you and I more than anything, and I shouldn't be saying this, right? Other people should be saying it. But I think it is the will we have to help more than the knowledge. Because there, I think there are a lot of knowledgeable people in the world. There are a lot of people who have 
really good academic knowledge and that might have really good experience, but might not have the will actually to go there or the possibilities, etc. the personality wise or whatever reason they have for not going. But in that case, you and I had the will yeah. to go there. That's true. And the will not only to go, because also Shell came with us and Shell Anderson, but also the will to go back yeah. and to believe in what we could offer. Yeah, that's And right. we believe in that. And uh, we continue to believe in that, of course, despite all of the difficult circumstances we face for, you know, mainly financial, because we don't have like the economic means to go back as often as we wish to go and to actually um, um, work more in the field of Iraq, but we have the will and the, and that is nothing can remove, you know, and no one can remove that will from us. Yeah, that's and true. I do, mm -hmm, and I do remember that CITES was probably one of the most impactful places, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. if not the most, actually. I think mm -hmm. the, the city, the region of Sinjar and the city of Sinjar mm -hmm. were just devastating it was just rubbles is that yeah, yeah rubbles rubble. all over yeah. all over the place and uh no one left like you said but a few peshmerga and just the f yeah no civilians actually I, I don't remember seeing any civilians they weren't allowed in because it was still considered no. a war zone you know and there were still uh, landmines and there were still landmines and there was still bombing right or, or rocket mm -hmm. attacks from isis and there mm -hmm. was coalition bombing as well in this region. Yes. Yeah, so so civilians were not allowed in. And we just, you know, it's funny. I don't know why I'm telling this story, but I but it always amuses me that we went with no security at all. Yeah. You know, none at all. I had taken a little, a little like, I, there was this wonderful former U.S. Uh, Special Forces uh, veteran. Yeah. <laughs> So, right. You're heading to the satellite phone. I know that. He trained me for like three hours one night on on Skype, right? And what to do if someone gets their leg blown off. Here's how you tie a tourniquet. Do you know, have a go bag. Do you know, and I was made, Irena and Shell made fun of me because I was like the American with these crazy things. But, you know, we almost stepped on a live landmine yeah. at, at another so yes if you're going to do this sort of work take the, take the courses they're useful you know they do come yeah. in handy and yeah and i was told to get a satellite phone which i did just in case we're stranded and and you know surrounded by isis and it's and we were glad to have it because at some point we ended up in the unsecured war zone that means the war zone where the border is still porous and mm -hmm. uh, we were a kilometer away from ISIS, like they could see us. Yeah. Um, and so we had this phone. It was useful to have, although it, it terrified my family because this is, you know, just my problem. But I would send a little text in the morning and say, you know, we're leaving, you know, and then they would follow me on the satellite phone. But I would never text them <laughs> when we'd returned you know, so they, oh, when I we were safe, because I'd forget, because we had these long 18-hour days, and yeah. I was so tired. We were, we were and, so exhausted. And I'd be asleep, and they'd be frantically texting me on that phone to see if I was back or where was I. 
also because they didn't know the geography, right? So they couldn't yes. really tell where I was. So yes, it, it was for for the for the folks at home, it was a total nightmare. But I was glad to have it, weren't <laughs> you? When we were in the unsecured space, at least we knew we could call for backup or something. But you know, <laughs> I hear from people that like they went to Iraq and they visited the mass graves. This is from other scholars, but they had like armored personnel carriers yes. and do you know? And they had these like twelve. They were like twelve car long you know cavalcades of people and yeah, with, the machine guards. Guns, so with machine guns machine attached guns to the back of the top. truck yes. yes exactly right yes, and yes, yes. and that they were wanted by isis and they narrowly escaped these things and you know i don't know everyone kind of enhances their stories a little bit right <laughs> But you were not wanted by ISIS for sure. I guess not, you know, because they didn't come and get us. And and I've just thought, like, you know, maybe we had it right. Like when you're traveling in a dangerous space, it's best to go with local people. So we were traveling around with a Yazidi, um, a couple Christians, Christians. and and one Peshmerga, right? right? Who who got in our car? We didn't even notice. He was amazing, like magical Peshmerga. We're sitting in the car, and suddenly he pops up. We had no idea where he come from um so yeah but we were in this honda truck you know and and with no security whatsoever unbelievable and we stayed in hotels with no security we stayed in hotels where no other you know foreigners were there um it was interesting i I only i always get asked by people so were you wearing a u.n vest (laughs) no first of all we, we we didn't go with the u.n we hardly saw the UN actually, and then <laughs> that's um, true. <laughs> this, that's true. We hardly yeah, saw the very UN. True. <laughs> they were white trucks, but I don't know where they are white yeah. or you know yeah. ivory colors. So, yeah, somehow. Right, they were ivory. Co- they were a little ivory. No UN signs. Nothing. Just us jumping in there sometimes with our falafel when we would stop for food. <laughs> That's eating right. in the truck, a couple of waters, seven ups yeah. or Coca Colas. Okay. Maybe they can give us some money for saying the ad yeah. of seven up and Coca Cola. <laughs> anyway, and that was about it. We didn't we didn't yeah. have anything. We had nothing. And I remember when you brought that satellite phone, I was like, Oh my god, this crazy woman <laughs> this American. with the GPS. Like, oh my god, it's too much. <laughs> and then we I helped you program it remember right, I do I, I help you send the location and we're like okay so you have the phone on so it's it's is it working right. later on I was happy with the phone too because it's you know I think well I, I wasn't thinking all the time that we were unsafe or mm-hmm, safe mm-hmm. I was just going where we were brought that's it right yeah. I wasn't yeah that was my experience then I think after I came back here, I realized how dangerous it was, right? Mm -hmm. I think that was afterwards. And maybe it was the fact that we were jet lagged and the fact that we we didn't know anything. So we were uh, always very surprised at what we saw, positively and negatively. Mm -hmm. But we were always... uh, we were always given so much information. There were so many meetings. Mm-hmm, there was mm-hmm. so many people. Some of the meetings were amazing. Some of other meetings were really heavy, like emotionally, yeah. Yeah. you know, with survivors and Yazidi survivors, um, Christian survivors. And I think all of that sort of, even if it consumes your energy, also keeps you awake because yes. we were sleeping for like four or five hours, you know, daily. And I had no time to think, 
whether we were safe or not, whether we, yeah. we, we needed a vest, like a bulletproof vest. I never asked if our car was an armor card. It, it was not. It was, a, it was like a, yeah, I think it was one of their trucks. Yes, I think it belonged to one of the guys, you know. <laughs> right. Remember the, the, the driver, the Christian guy, I can't remember his mm -hmm. name, this man who drove us a lot, especially mm -hmm. during he our first He was a leader. He was a leader in the Chaldean he was community, the right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And he was the oh, last no. to leave Karakosh, yeah. besides the people that rest, some people remain there, but yeah. he was the last mm. to leave the city or the town when ISIS arrived. I remember Karakosh that. Karakosh is a Christian so, yeah. um, town mm. in the Nineveh plain that was under ISIS domination for, um, mm. I yeah. guess, three or four years. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. biggest Christian mm -hmm. town about... Mm -hmm. Completely 000. destroyed. Yeah, yeah. completely yeah. destroyed. 50,000 Christians uh, in, in Karakosh or Baghdida, they say Baghdida yeah. as well, like yeah. Baghdida. But I remember him, he was the last to leave and I thought, what a courage, courageous man, right? Yeah. What a courageous Completely. man Completely. And he was because former Peshmerga. He was yeah, former. former. They were all for. So in that way, yeah, it was, you know, in that way they had yeah. military training and they'd actually yeah. fought. These <laughs> were, you know, another yeah. one of the men who invited us was... Um, incarcerated and tortured by Saddam Hussein. Yes. Um, yes. You know, so these were these were tough, battle-worn men who were horrified to see what was happening to their communities and wanted some international witnesses who were also genocide scholars to kind of endorse their concerns about what had happened to them. Um, you know, and it was it was rare. They were a rare group because there is not much. Um, collaboration between groups, national and religious groups in Iraq. And yet this was a partnership between um, Christians and Yazidis. Yes. Yeah. Well, they, they, just to go back to what we said previously on the, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you mentioned actually, they all suffer from each other somehow. Yeah. So there is little yep. collaboration in that sense. And mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. this, I think in that room, in that space, of lack of collaboration is where we thought we could work. You know, Precisely. we could do some mm -hmm. work. Well, we and, this, do, and this happened. Do you remember we, um, well, let's, let's step back a little bit, but we'll go back to that, yeah. like in ways in which mm -hmm. we were actually useful so that we saw yeah. while we were there what our role could be, right? Exactly. But what we decided to do is we were, we were very, very aware of how um, kind of exploitative the international community can mm -hmm. be at times of conflict. And so, you know, we realized quite quickly that, you know, we'd been reading about what ISIS was doing to Yazidi girls and women in captivity mm -hmm. for, let's see, a year and a half by the time we got there. So clearly mm -hmm. a lot of journalists had come in and out of Iraq to interview uh, women, who had, women and girls who had escaped. And yet when we went into the into the uh, IDP camps, as much as the Kurdish regional authority was trying to offer people what they needed, mm -hmm. you know, with its meager funds for this, um, uh, you know, the women had nothing. Mm -hmm. These escaped women had no programs focusing no. on them. No. Mm -hmm. And we thought, how is that possible? You know, you can read about them every day in the international yeah. news, and yet no one's thought that maybe they need jobs or no one's thought maybe they need some sort of 
uh, mental health care, right? Or something, something. Anything, education. Anything, education. Anything. Yeah. anything no. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and and most of the help that they've received up to this point is a consequence of their own, of the Yazidi diaspora's tireless efforts yeah. on their behalf, as well as Kurdish authorities. But the international community has been really um, slow in responding, mm -hmm. similar to the way they were slow in securing the grave sites. I mean, you yeah. know, the mass grave oh. sites that it's it's unforgivable. I guess I had thought I hadn't really thought about this, but I guess I had thought that when a genocidal entity is in the news as much as ISIS was and is being attacked by an international coalition, including the United mm -hmm. States, the one of the most powerful um, uh, military in the world, that, you know, there would be some rapid response team that would be sent in immediately. Humanitarian response. Right, humanitarian. Yes. Well, and yes. also legal response. And legal. Because exactly. we knew they had committed massacres. So I was surprised well, that why didn't the UN or the mm -hmm. US military have some kind of legal and, yes, humanitarian response team that followed the troops as they advanced exactly. on new ground and secured well, those mass graves so that they can be used for evidence at, at future trials. Right. Remember that this was one of my first questions when we were, we were interviewed by so many people. I said, how are you gathering evidence? Like, right. who are you? Who, right. who is gathering the testimonies, exactly. for example? Yeah, exactly. Witness testimonies. Who is gathering? No, they go to the police, maybe, or they go to this official or, well, you need to gather them formally so they're valid later on in a trial. Right. And we saw that the majority of the evidence gathering was being done by non-governmental local grassroots organizations exactly. in Iraq. Exactly. There was almost all of it. Provided. I think all of, all it. of it. I think all of it. Yeah. All you of, know, and so I don't, well, now there's this UN special uh, mission. Yeah, but that started uh, late. But that's, that was late. That wasn't even in existence in 2016, 2017, yeah. right after the crimes were committed, where I the know. evidence is fresh and new and where you need to gather that evidence. Um, so you, this is very, very, this is something very important you just pointed out, how it was, it was all done very informally. Yeah. Of course, and with the little means, local NGOs, we're talking about local NGOs, the city Christians, I mean, people who had suffered, yeah. who were displaced who were displaced themselves exactly themselves were displaced themselves were victims yeah, many no. of them had direct uh, were direct vic victims not only because of being displaced but because their family members suffered uh killings uh, sexual violence etc they were they were the ones gathering the evidence right exactly so i mean it was it was do it yourself do it yourself yeah, do that's it what yourself. it was you know, and so in that in that context, Irena and I thought, well, we don't want to be, <laughs> we don't want to be like that. We don't want to float into Iraq from the stratosphere, oh. from outer space, and leave again, yeah. and no one, no one hears from us again. You know, but we were racking our brains since we're not psychologists. You know, we're not wealthy. We're not heads of mm. major NGOs that could do something. Um, you know, we were racking our brains what we could do. But we did see when we were there that, um, you know, there was one. So so what we decided we would do is we would go back and we would uh, 
We would hold workshops in genocide prevention and accountability for anybody who wanted to come and get a workshop on this, who anyone wanted to learn. And we created a curriculum that was very neutral and that was based on the kind of curriculum in genocide prevention that the elites of the world receive through very well-known organizations that are involved in genocide prevention. These are really, really good curricula. Um, But we realized that, you know, these Yazidis and Christians in particular, but also Shabak, Shia, and Kakai, and all yeah. of these smaller groups that nobody talks about, they knew a lot about genocide. They knew a lot about the ICC. They had opinions. They, they, as as Idana was just saying, they were they were documenting what had happened. Mm-hmm. Right? They had the documents, um, and 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 you know they were so interested in it. And we thought, well, aren't you know don't, doesn't the grassroots and don't victims and survivors deserve the same sort of training? Yeah then especially Mm -hmm. since this is their country and you know it's their future so we decided we'd do these free trainings um anywhere we could go and you know it turned out not to be safe enough to go outside of the kurdish regional government but we did um do trainings everywhere that we could within territory controlled by kurds um and Mm -hmm. in one of them it was huge it was like a hundred over a hundred people oh yes that it was three days long uh, mm-hmm. it was, people were so engaged in the conversation. So we presented these very neutral slides, neutral information that allowed mm-hmm. people to examine their own suffering, but then also look with some objectivity at the suffering of other groups in Iraq. And they began mm-hmm. to see that suffering doesn't cancel, that one suffering doesn't cancel out another's suffering right Mm -hmm. that that you Mm -hmm. can you can actually share you can be part of a same pattern of suffering and in iraq it is one of those countries where you have serial genocide do you know the kurds have experienced genocide the sunnis experienced genocide after the un i mean the u.s invasion in 2003 right do you know um the yazidis have experienced genocide the shabak shia peoples have experienced genocide so almost the 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 marsh arabs right in the south have experienced what i would call genocide so there are just many groups that have experienced identity-based violence aimed at their erasure and their Mm -hmm. you know and and yeah yeah, and Mm -hmm. their elimination somehow and so that they could share in that pain and so we saw like we saw how powerful this could be. And in fact, people started making connections using us. Yes. So there was this wonderful man who was the head of the sort of Kurdish investiga- investigative office, right, for the crimes yes. against the Yazidis. Mm-hmm. And he came with us in 2017 to towns in the Nineveh Plain, including Karakosh, Christian towns that had recently been liberated by um, coalition forces. And he was shocked by what he saw um, Mm -hmm. because there was a language in Iraq that only the Yazidis had experienced genocide. Genocide, exactly. But Mm -hmm. he was shocked and he was was sort of um, much more serious after that about the case that, that the Christians had for genocide mm-hmm. right um yep. and and then and then continued his involvement with people after we left and some young people that we met um who were christian and yazidi began to work together um and form a small ngo 
Um, and many of the Kurds, the Kakei as well, are working together. Well, right. they started actually getting ideas from right. other NGOs to organize themselves as an exactly. NGO as well. I think we became sort of like neutral yeah. elements or yes. neutral actors right. in the process. Right. As most, as we were saying, most of these groups had suffered from each other and right. had exercise violence against each other mm -hmm. so they didn't see any of them as neutral <laughs> and we appeared yes exactly yeah. right in the historical totally. you know from a historical perspective and we came being neutral with you know no mm -hmm. actually no Arab origin neither right. you or I have any link to Iraq or the Middle East actually at all um, so I think they saw us as that as people that would be neutral and that could provide them with neutral information about what genocide, what accountability, what reconciliation yeah. and the different efforts each of them have to make, right? Yeah, exactly. And we, we actually had the idea of bringing these workshops to higher levels of the government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, and we continue to have that idea. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We did hold... Yes, we hold meetings with different mem members of the government, ma mainly in the Kurdistan regional area. Unfortunately, we did want to go to Baghdad, but the different uh, scenario with the referendum and mm -hmm. the independence, you know, the, the, the referendum for the independence of Kurdistan prevented us from doing that. And now the pandemic. And now the so, pandemic, but, yeah. And now the pandemic, unfortunately. But our will is to bring these workshops and this, this genocide awareness workshops into the government sphere. Right. So we can work with the different, the judiciary, the executive and the legislative powers yeah. in the government to work on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's interesting. The reason that we think this is powerful, you know, education in and of itself is not a panacea. We know that, right? No. It's not enough. But genocide prevention education is slightly different in that it, it offers tools for people to understand the future in a way that's directed against genocide rather than falling into the established historical patterns of mutual mm -hmm. genocide and serial genocide. And, and when everyone has the same training, you know, there's a kind of language of prevention that emerges, emerges out of genocide prevention training. And, and a sort of shared perspective on the world. I know that, I know my students um, see things no. differently than, than people who haven't studied genocide. I, they can see genocide, exactly. they can see the patterns, right? They, mm -hmm. can, they, they notice red flags before others do. They hear speech acts in different ways, right? They can identify dangerous speech more easily. Um, and so you become much more sensitive to this crime uh, when mm -hmm. you take these trainings. And so what, what, you know, what we want to do is create a sort of shared language of prevention that exactly. then people across society, across vertically, right? So the elites down to the grassroots, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But then across society in terms of um, sectarian differences and then also professional mm -hmm. differences. So folks working in the environmentalism, folks working in labor rights, folks working exactly. in women's rights, youth rights, they all are thinking about their work in terms of genocide prevention. Frankly, mm -hmm. this is something I think we could use in the United States, certainly yeah. in Israel and Palestine, right? Mm -hmm. I, all mm -hmm. over the world, this is a useful model of um, mm -hmm. indigenous sort of 
uh, grassroots genocide prevention. And one of the things I really love about our project, Irena, Mm-hmm. is that we don't think we have the solutions. You often say this no. as well, right? <laughs> like we have yeah. information, we have some knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but, but these are just tools and we offer the tools yeah. and then people use them in unpredictable ways, right? But yeah. it empowers people to use them in unpredictable ways to, to gain more control over peace in the future. Exactly. Yeah, I fully agree. Like I said, we have and we have many people. I repeat this. Many people have the tools, but not many people might have the will or the possibility of of doing what we're doing with a, with our project. So I think those are essential elements. And I think it's not only about education as as in teaching something. I think we have to see it in a broader scenario, because when we bring this Aware, genocide prevention, awareness education, I think it impacts later, you know, yes. on the laws, on yeah, poli- yeah, public yeah. policy. And mm-hmm. I think our work ends on that also, not ends, but maybe is a means to that, to mm. creating uh, public policies and laws in Iraq that would be inclusive for all of the communities. Yeah. And of course, this is not a, like a panacea project or anything. <laughs> it's a project that takes many years. It yeah. takes many years and it takes a lot of effort and not the efforts of individuals, but the efforts of the collective, right, of the entire society. Exactly. Um, exactly. It's, it's, mm-hmm. no, no, it's not just us. You know, it's right. not just us. We're right. just, we need the others. We can't just do it ourselves. Right. We can't, um, this, right. We can't do it at all. We're not Iraqi, right? So exactly. we don't know that. So, yeah, exactly. It's like a radical sort of investment and faith in mm-hmm. in people's ability to solve their own problems you know exactly. and in that way it's a portable model i truly believe this that our model yep. is portable it can be applied to any um domestic context to any conflict to any post-conflict situation with certain adaptations made for the locality do you know and that's something we'd like to do is go global mm-hmm. with this yes. You know, yes. you know, next in, in our next podcast, we will be coming back about this because I think we need to put a little bit of of an emphasis in our work and, and to let people know what we do. And we've we've come out with with a lot of things and a lot of conclusions in the few times we were in Iraq that we actually presented to the Pope in, in 2017 mm-hmm. and the ideas we had and that were quite well received in the mm-hmm. in the Vatican. So we'll talk about them in the future. I hope we can yeah. cover them about our perceptions of of uh, Iraqi society of prevention and how we work mm-hmm. with that and, and all of the all of the problems that we see that, of course, can can be difficulties that, that prevent us from doing the work properly, but that we, we will be able to address eventually as well. Mm-hmm. I love that. And that's a great <laughs> note to end on. <laughs> Next time you hear from Just Irena and myself, we will be talking about our insights into Iraq and prevention. <laughs> And global peace. (laughs) And global peace. Hey, we're just two dreamers, right? Totally. We are dreamers. We're not silly. We don't have rose-colored glasses, you know. No, Um, no, no, no. But but we've seen seen evidence of the impact that such things can have. And furthermore, you know, we've had long discussions about this, but we don't see a purpose in not trying like what does one get then you definitely get nothing right you get nothing from nothing 
So maybe we'll get nothing from something, but 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 uh, but we'll live a life that 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 we that we value and that is exactly. meaningful to us in the process. We always that's that's the note to end it. But we always say, but I have to add something. <laughs> we always have to add something. No, I, we we have a saying here that it's it's in Spanish is. Ya tenes el no, which means you already have the no, right? Yeah. Go for the yes. Go for the yes. So we already have the no that we cannot do it, that we will not be able to do anything or that we will not be able to make a difference. We already have that. Since we have that, let's try and go for the yes. Yes, that we let's can go do for it, the yes. And that we have the possibility of making a change. Yeah. Certainly. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that now that's an even better way to end. <laughs> I'm glad you added that on. <laughs> oh well thank you all for joining us and don't forget yes, go you, for the people. yes that's the motto now go for the yes i like go that for the yes. i like yes. that a lot and we hope you guys have a really safe week a happy week um and we'll see you next week we'll be talking about the yazidi genocide mm -hmm. again with dr amy beam and, and another special guest. So please make sure to join us for that. Look for us on iTunes, Spotify, and Patreon. If you're so inclined, if you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. All of the funds from a subscription uh, go to supporting the work of the Iraq Project. Um, and I'll just add right here that we are currently uh, building webinars online for IDPs in Iraq to take mm -hmm. about sort of know your rights webinars mm -hmm. about human rights yes. and genocide prevention since we're restricted in travel because of the mm -hmm. pandemic. So that's what you will be supporting. Um, yeah. And and subscriptions Please. start at two dollars. <laughs> Please subscribe. We have seven very generous and lovely supporters now, um, but we could use more. And and mm -hmm. we'd like to have an audience that we can check in with, that asks us questions, that we can do live broadcasts with. So mm -hmm. we're trying to build that, and it starts at two dollars a month. So yeah. it's a deal. Mm -hmm. It's a deal. It's a deal. <laughs> it's a good deal. <laughs> Alrighty, well, bye, Irene. Thank you so bye, much. Irina. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye.